You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Once again, as I often do, let me begin by establishing the context. One of my beloved mentors, Dr. Robert Lowry, used to emphasize that the only way to draw out the meaning, to explain in full a passage in Scripture, involved studying the grammar, the meaning of the words, the form and structure, and the historical and biblical context. And the goal was to determine what the author or the speaker actually communicated to the original recipients. And in doing that then, we can understand the principle and apply it to our current situation. And I can remember many times that Bob would repeat, context, context, context. And the Sermon on the Mount, as we have it, in Matthew, the context is that Matthew places a sermon right at the beginning in order to establish what he meant when he said that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Not the good news of salvation, but the good news of the kingdom. And, and yes, this, in, this context includes that Jesus went up on the mountain, sat down and opened his mouth and taught them. He's assuming the posture of a teacher of the law as the one who was, in fact, prophesied to come by Moses himself, one like Moses to whom we are to listen to. Now, if we're going to understand this section of the sermon, that we're looking at and how it relates to the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the context is also going to include, by necessity, Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. I have not come to abolish them, that is the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And his summary statement was that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we saw last Sunday that rather than looking at Matthew 5, 21 to 48, 
as six antitheses you have heard, but I say. We need to understand that Matthew is not making contrasts. Jesus is not making contrasts to annul the Torah statements. But it is exegesis, it is explanation that explains the vicious cycles that we find ourselves in and then to give us some transforming initiatives. In terms of murder, Jesus didn't say the Torah forbids murder, but I say it's okay. A contrast, just don't get angry. No, Jesus affirmed the sanctity of life and said that the answer is found in overcoming the vicious cycles. And it's in the third section of each of these triads where Jesus provides the commands for transforming and restoring broken relationships. In fact, in terms of the importance, he even says that if you're at the altar, if you're at church, if you're giving your offering to God, restoration is so important that you should get up and leave. Go and take care of the problem that you have with somebody else and then return to worship. Secondly, he said in court cases, you need to come to some kind of resolution quickly with your accusers. By the way, we noted that there is a biblical model for restoration. We've often heard it designated as church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. That's an important line, by the way. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We are given a model for taking care of things. And so, if somebody has wronged you, nobody else should know about that until you've gone to that person. And yet, each one of us here can probably tell stories of someone who said, well, so-and-so did this to me. And if you said, well, have you gone to them? More than likely, the answer would be no. Now, on the back of the study guide last Sunday, I provided a visual diagram of the threefold presentation for this first section on murder and anger. And I noted how Jesus uses this, path, this pattern, the traditional righteousness, the cycles of uh, vicious cycles that we get ourselves in, and then the opportunities for redemption. Uh, these all six of these so-called antitheses, these teachings, follow this pattern. Those who place the emphasis on anger, lust, and so on, actually make the teachings primarily negative. Injunctions and, and impossible ideals, rather than on positive ways of deliverance. 
which would actually be fitting uh, for the good news of the kingdom that has already been, been announced in the Beatitudes. Now I provided a goldenrod or yellow or I don't know what that color is. Men are supposed to have red, blue, green, orange. Uh, we're not supposed to have to deal with fuchsias and goldenrods. But anyway, I provided you this sheet. And on one side, it actually shows that there are not just these six, but there are actually 14 of these triads in just the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, uh, Matthew really uses this triad structure when he tells stories because there's actually about 75 in the Gospel of Matthew uh, and only a very few true dyads, antitheses, opposites. So, and by the way, later, or you might want to turn it over and note that on the back I've shared with you how it really appears that James is a Jewish form of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a list of all of the parallels in that little short letter of James to just the Sermon on the Mount. So that's just for you to have uh, for your further study. Now this morning, <coughs> we're going to look at the, the second and third teaching triad together, combining the topics of adultery and divorce. And one reason for doing this is that when Jesus teaches about divorce elsewhere, uh, Matthew chapter 19, where he's being tested as to the grounds for divorce, his response points us back to Genesis 1 and 2, where the primary framework for understanding the covenant of marriage is the oneness that's created that's not to be broken. In fact, Larry Chenard notes that any preoccupation with the grounds for severing a marital union has often been done at the expense of affirming the permanently binding commitment of marriage. My friend Bruce Parmenter, who taught for years down at Lincoln Christian Seminary, wrote a little booklet on divorce and remarriage. And that's one of the things he stressed. When we are arguing and discussing the grounds for divorce, we've missed the whole concept of the teaching of marriage. And there's another thing, by the way. Uh, listen, because I'm speaking as one who's been there. Divorce, for whatever reason, must always be viewed as a tragic failure and a serious violation of God's original intention regarding marriage. But there are times when there isn't a good choice to make. We can only choose from the lesser of evils. And we need to remember that God Himself in Malachi 2.16 said, For I hate divorce. And yet, in Jeremiah 3, we read that the Lord said to Jeremiah that Israel's treacherous sister Judah saw for all the adulteries of the faithless one, which was Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. 
Yes. God says that He divorced Israel. Now, when Jesus responds to the testing by the Pharisees, his answer basically agrees with the school of Rabbi Shammai over and against Hillel in that some form of sexual impropriety makes divorce permissible. Now there's a second reason why I've chosen to deal with these two together. And I think you'll notice that in verse 31, Jesus does not repeat the longer wording. You have heard that it was said but simply gives a connecting statement. It was also said. The third triad has the least elaborated introduction and I believe it's probably because of a close link with the preceding teaching regarding adultery and lust. There is no question Jesus' teaching regarding divorce does have a lot to do with a full understanding of the command not to commit adultery. As we start to dig into the text a little bit, there's one phrase that's repeated that I think we need to hear. It's in verses 29 and 30. For it is better. For it is better. Seldom in life, if ever, are we able to pick from among ideal conditions or circumstances? As I've already said, we often deal with the lesser of two evils. Let me give you a quick example dealing with divorce and remarriage, biblically speaking. When Paul's addressing the principles for marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks to the believer who has an unbelieving partner in verse 15. And he writes, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, not under the binding, is not bound. In fact, the NIV and the NRSV both have, is not bound. And that exact same word is what Paul uses in verse 39 when he writes, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So what Paul's saying is, just like if you're married and your spouse dies, you're free to, re to remarry. If you're married to an unbeliever and they choose to leave to sever the relationship, you are free to remarry also. I think what we need to see here, however, uh, is that in Paul, when Paul's writing, Even though he says divorce is acceptable for a believer when an unbeliever abandons them, I think we need to see that the vows of marriage are broken whenever a spouse chooses to do other things like be abusive, whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse. 
When we start being legalistic, we have missed the intent of Scripture. When we start focusing on reasons for divorce, we have missed the intent of Scripture. And you understand, don't you, that even if the divorce is done for all the wrong reasons, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. There's only one sin the Bible speaks of as being unforgivable. And what is it? You know it. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So what is it that, that is the focus of Jesus' teaching in these verses that we read? And I think the first thing that stands out to me at least is the heart-focused dimension. The point Jesus is making is that adultery has already been committed, at least in one sense, when a man looks with the purpose of coveting or desiring in his heart. In an article that my friend Don Green, who was president at Lincoln for a while, wrote honoring Doc Henderson, he pointed out how Doc insisted that this re referred to the look that persists and continues. The emphasis is on the continual looking, the purposeful, the calculated looking that is done to awaken the desire. Think about this for, with regard to King David. David wasn't at fault for seeing Bathsheba bathing on the roof. It was not the casual glance due to an unavoidable exposure to temptation that led to David's sin. And I think possibly James had this teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in mind in James 1, 14 and 15 when he comments, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But that's not sin. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. See, what we need to see here is that the explicit language of the heart is one of the clearest examples of the deep and consistent theme of inward purity that continues to surface throughout the Scriptures and especially throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' exhortation is not an antithesis, but it's a strong continuity with the ethical teaching of the Old Testament. The heart-focused explanations reveal the true depth of the matter. They offer a strong pushback a strong resistance against the human tendency to focus on the external actions and make godliness a matter of appropriate behavior regardless of what's in the heart. You see, scripturally speaking, it really doesn't matter how good my friend my relative might be or has been if their heart isn't right. The broad and easy way is the way of external religion and that, Jesus said, 
is the road to destruction. The heart dimension is what enables whole person righteousness. Secondly, Jesus goes on to point out that greater righteousness, the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, demands radical action. So, in verses 29 and 30, when Jesus calls for us to pluck out the offensive eye and throw it away and cut off the offending hand and throw it away, He's obviously speaking in hyperbolic terms. Because if I am sinning with my one eye, isn't my other eye also going to be involved in that? And if I just pluck out one of them, am I still not going to be able to sin and lust with the other eye? Obviously. John Stott believes this was evidently a favorite saying of Jesus, in fact, because he quoted it more than once. It actually occurs later in Matthew where the foot is also added to the eye and the hand and the reference is a general one to the temptations to sin. Not explicitly sexual temptation. So since the principle has a wider application, what did Jesus mean by it? Now you have to admit on the surface it's a startling command to pluck out an offending eye, to cut off an offending hand or foot. And unfortunately, a few Christians whose zeal greatly uh, exceeded their wisdom have taken Jesus literally and mutilated themselves. Perhaps the best known example was the 3rd century scholar Origen of Alexandria. He went to extremes of asceticism, renouncing possessions, food, sleep, and in an over-literal interpretation of this passage and Matthew 19, he actually made himself a eunuch. And not long after that, in A.D. 325, the Council of Nicaea was right in forbidding this practice as not in keeping with Jesus' intent. The command to rid of troublesome eyes, hands, and feet is an example of our use as Lord, our, our Lord's use of dramatic speech, figures of speech. And when he was advocate, what he was advocating was not a literal physical self-maiming, but a radical and ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification. That's the path to holiness that's taught in Scripture. And mortification or taking up the cross to follow Christ means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them. We put them to death. What does this involve in terms of practice? Well, let me elaborate and, and, and so in doing so I'll elaborate a bit on Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, objects that you see, then don't look. Sit with your back to someone who's not dressed properly or who is flirting. Get up and leave if the temptations are starting to get the best of you. I, I didn't do this for the right reason. I did it out of fear. But when I was in high school, me and a couple of buddies went to a party after a football game. 
And when we walked up the steps, I said, looked in, and I said, I'm not going in there. And my buddy said, why? You were the star of the game tonight. This is mostly, you know, you're going to be a hit here at this party. I said, I'm not going in there because I see a keg of beer. And if my dad ever found out that I was in there, I wouldn't be playing next week. I'd be too injured. We have to resist the temptations. Don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you actually didn't have the hands and feet necessary. And you're now crippled and so now cannot do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. That's the meaning of mortification. It's what the Old Testament, what Jesus and what Paul spoke of in terms of the circumcision of the heart. Which brings me to my final point. Jesus models both continuity and discontinuity. There's no question that these verses cannot be thought to represent the sum total of our Lord's instruction on the whole mountain about divorce. They seem to be an abbreviated summary of His teaching, of which indeed Matthew does record a fuller version in chapter 19. And the question we must address is where we are placing our focus. We know that at the time of Jesus, there was a controversy about divorce being conducted between the rival rabbinic schools of Hillel and Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai took a rigorous line. He taught from Deuteronomy 24.1 that the sole ground for divorce was some grave matrimonial offense, something evidently unseemly or undecently. Hillel, on the other hand, took that unseemly or indecent and he allowed divorce for if, if the wife burnt your supper. Or if somebody came along who was more seemly than the unseemliness of your wife. And the Pharisees, though viewed to be very pious, seem to have been attracted to Rabbi Hillel's laxity. Which explains the form of the question that they addressed to Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words... They wanted to know if Jesus was on the Shammai side of the contemporary debate or on the side of Hillel. And our Lord's reply to their question again was in three parts. While the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, Jesus focused on the foundations and the institution of marriage. While the Pharisees called Moses' provision of divorce for divorce a command, Jesus pointed out that it was really a concession due to the hardness of their hearts, an attempt actually to protect the women. If a woman did not have a certificate of divorce when she was put out of in a marriage, do you know what the assumption was? It was for adultery. And that's why Jesus said, if you divorce her and you haven't given her a certificate, you are making her to look like an adulteress in the eyes of everybody. While the Pharisees regarded divorce lightly, 
Jesus took it so seriously that He only allowed the one exception. And the relationship, the transforming initiative would again have to involve radical action. Seeking to restore the broken relationship. But realistically speaking, that's not always possible. Just as it is with peacemakers, Paul said we should strive for peace as far or as long as it depends on you. If you are with somebody who is intent on breaking the marital relationships, I know from experience. You can fight it in the court for years. And finally, the judge, if he's your friend, as my judge was, will be honest enough to say, you're not going to stop this divorce from happening. You're only wasting your money. Please listen to me. Even if we take the most rigid stance possible on divorce and remarriage, it's not the unforgivable sin. We need more than ever to put on love because love covers a multitude of sins. We need to live and respond in humility because our sins are just as bad as the sins of others. We need to forgive if we're to be forgiven. Jesus said in that prayer, and we pray it, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive others. You know what that means? If you're not forgiving, you aren't being forgiven. So here's my challenge I want to leave you with. We need to realize that the fulfillment of God's will should never be and will never be accomplished by outer compulsion. We can point our fingers, we can look down our snooty eyes, looks, whatever. We can give our judgmental insults all day. And it will change hardly anything. Except make people hate the church all that much more. No true change that will fulfill God's will will only come about by inner impulse. Helping people realize that there is a more abundant, a more fulfilling, a more flourishing way to live. And love is right at the center of it. Let's pray. Father God, we come to this difficult situation a situation that has affected more than 50% currently of the marriages that are taking place and even higher percentages in relationships that you already said are not acceptable. Help us to understand that we need to change our hearts. We need to change our focus. We need to change from trying to judge to ways that we can help people transform.
Help us to commit ourselves to that today as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.